0: The are
1: Good evening, dear listeners. Finally, back from break, Dread Time Stories is on the air to give you this, your weekly dread once more. Yours cruelly is still working on transitioning the program to a fully pre-recorded format. However, with Halloween coming up, the show has been relaunched to take advantage of the season. Tonight, we have a story from British writer Algernon Blackwood, written and published in 1908. The Kit Bag is about a man who works as an assistant to a lawyer defending an accused murderer. After the case is over, he decides to go on a vacation to the Swiss Alps, and asks his employer for the loan of a kit bag, or as we Yankees call it, a duffel bag. From there, the horror begins. I'll be back for the B Block of the show with some information about this week's writer, as well as an introduction for this week's episode of The Magnus Archives. Enjoy.
0: The Kid Bag by Algernon Black. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Craster. The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood. Where the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC and leader for the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior. But Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. ''It's what we expected, I think,'' said the barrister, without emotion. ''And personally, I am glad the case is over.'' There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defence of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity, had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everybody who had watched the face felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. ''I'm glad too,'' said Johnson. He had sat in the court for ten days, watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. "'Ah, I remember, yes,' he said with a kind smile. "'And you want to get away for Christmas. You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you?' If I was your age, I'd come with you." Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of twenty-six, with a delicate face like a girl's. "'I can catch the morning boat now,' he said. "'But that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man's dreadful face. It positively haunted me. That white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead is a thing I shall never forget.' and the description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that—' "'Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow,' interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. "'Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them.' He paused a moment. "'Now go,' he said presently, "'and enjoy your holiday. "'I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back. "'And don't break your neck, skiing.' Johnson shook hands and took his leave. At the door he turned suddenly. "'I knew there was something I wanted to ask you,' he said. "'Would you mind lending me one of your kit-bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open.' "'Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home.' "'I promise to take great care of it,' said Johnson gratefully delighted to think that within thirty hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless, it was miserable, and few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the keenest east wind he had ever felt. It howled dismally among the big gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall he met his landlady, shading a candle from the draughts with a thin hand. This comes by a man from Mr. Wilbrim, sir. She pointed to what was evidently the kit-bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. "'I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks,' he said. "'I'll leave an address for letters. And I hope you have a merry Christmas, sir,' she said in a raucous, wheezy voice that suggested spirits. And better weather than this!' "'I hope so, too,' replied her lodger, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet wallowing against the window panes. He put a skettle on to make a cup of hot coffee, and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. "'And now I must pack, such as my packing is,' he laughed to himself, and set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snow mountains so vividly before him and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature.' His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped, with holes around the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited. And there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots and ear caps. And then on the top of these he piled his woolen shirts and underwear, his thick socks putties, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner, and then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst of these kit-bags, he mused vaguely, standing in the centre of the sitting room where he had come to fetch some string. It was after ten o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up, and he thought with pity of the poor Londoners whose Christmas would be spent in such a climate whilst he was skimming over snowy slopes in bright sunshine and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Ah, that reminded him. He must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linen. As he did so, he heard someone coming up the stairs. He stood still a moment on the landing to listen. It was Mrs. Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up with the last post. But then the steps ceased suddenly and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion they were too heavy to be those of his bibulous lady. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. He went into the bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full, and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time he noticed that it was old and dirty, the canvas faded and worn, and that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him—certainly not a new one, or one that his chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought, and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below. For Mrs. Monks had not come up with letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards, cautiously, stealthily as silently as possible, and further, that the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant white shirts, he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain, for he could not tell exactly, looked like hair. It gave him rather a turn, for it was so absurdly, so outrageously, like the face of John Turk, the murderer. He laughed, and went into the front room, where the light was stronger. That horrid case has caught on to my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of a change of scene and air. In the sitting-room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs, and to realize that it was much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. And this time he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the banisters to Mrs. Monk's, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself and the owner of this soft and stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind, after all, although it seemed so very real and close, I thought. He went back to his packing. It was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last before turning in. It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Then a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion, and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also, that for some time past the causes of this feeling had been gathering slowly in his mind, but that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he were doing something that was strongly objected to by another person, another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of conscience, almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him, more it distressed and frightened him. "'Pure nerves, I suppose,' he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all that. Ah!" he added, still speaking to himself, and that reminds me—my snow-glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during this brief soliloquy, and as he passed quickly towards the sitting-room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs, a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position, with one hand on the banisters. And the face peering up towards the landing. And at the same moment he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all the time had at last come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be? And what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then, after a few seconds' hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs, he saw to his utter amazement, were empty there was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase where he had seen the figure, and then he walked fast, almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom, it was a heavy but at the same time a stealthy footstep, the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leaped the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute unreasoning fear before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross and beyond that, again, lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable one. "'By Jove! That was someone on the stairs, then,' he muttered, his flesh crawling all over. "'And whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom!' His delicate pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he realized, intuitively, that delay only set a premium upon fear and he crossed the landing boldly, and went straight into the other room, where, a few seconds before, the steps had disappeared. "'Who's there? Is that you, Mrs. Monks?' he called aloud, as he went, and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs, while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figure than his own. "'Who's there?' he called again, in a voice unnecessarily loud and that just only held firm. What do you want here? The curtain swayed very slightly, and, as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat, yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window, streaming with rain, was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes, hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought, that's not where I left it. A few moments before, it had surely been on his right, between the bed and the bath. He did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with a force of small gunshot, and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to realities. "'There's no one here, at any rate, that's quite clear,' he exclaimed aloud. Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding close about him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And two of my senses, he said, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged nearer to the door. What happened afterwards that night happened, of course, to a man already excited by fear, and was perceived by a mind that had not the full and proper control, therefore, of the senses. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and master of himself to the end pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation, or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity, and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterwards, from the moving of the kit bag to, well, To the other things the story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon the mental plates exposed in the courtroom of the old Bailey came strongly to light and developed themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant haunting memories have a way of coming to life again just when the mind least desires them, in the silent watches of the night, on sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision. The white skin, the evil eyes, and the fringe of black hair low over the forehead. All the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind, unbidden and very vivid. "'This is all rubbish and nerves!' he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. "'I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I am overwrought, overtired, no doubt. At this rate, I shall hear steps and things all night.' But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music-hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural. And the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it, and just over its crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind it to hide and at the same moment a sound like a long-drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him, between the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, but at first such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost a hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. "'Who's there?' he said at length, finding his voice, but though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward. So that he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack where it had fallen over, being only three parts full, and then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded blood stain he uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward towards the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the lights on again, but the rapid closing of the door, had set the coats hanging on it a-swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pocket, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers, but even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm so swift and alert are the impressions of a mind keyed up by a vivid emotion, he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light, and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness. It was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness. For there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit-bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. Not three feet from him the man stood, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead, the whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel, as vivid as he had seen him day after day in the old bailey, when he stood there in the dock, cynical and callous, under the very shadow of the gallows. In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial. The ghastly, dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced as evidence. It all came back to him as clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door. But before he could actually turn it, the very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, the heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into the words, It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized that he was lying stiff and bruised on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. When he woke the second time, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in at the windows, painting the stairs a cheerless dismal grey and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamour woke him. He recognised Mrs. Monk's voice, loud and voluble. "'What? You ain't been to bed, sir. You ill, or has anything happened? And there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet, and—' "'Who is it?' he stammered. "'I'm all right.' "'Thanks. Fell asleep in my chair, I suppose. "'Someone from Mr. Wilbraham's, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad, and I told him—' "'Show him up, please, at once,' said Johnson, whose head was whirling, and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies, and explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made, and that the wrong kit-bag had been sent over the night before.' Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom. And Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room, and asked why it had not gone to you," the man said. "'Oh,' said Johnson stupidly, "'and he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid,' the man continued, without the ghost of an expression on his face. "'The one John Turk packed the dead body in. Mr. Wilbraham's awfully upset about it, sir and told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one, as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean-looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes, Johnson could not find his voice. At last he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me, just empty the things out on the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. "'Thank you, sir,' the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. "'And can I do anything more to help you, sir?' "'What is it?' asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. "'Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case—' I thought you'd maybe like to know what's happened." -"Yes." John Turk killed himself last night with poison immediately on getting his release, and he left a note from Mr. Wilbraham saying, as he'd be much obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he'd murdered in the old kit bag. -"What time did he do it?" asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir," the warder says. End of The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.
2: Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's Believe it or not. Perhaps one reason why the elephant has been employed by men in heavy-duty construction work is that the elephant is the only animal with four knees, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a man possessed by his name. Baron Hermann von Midnacht, Prime Minister of the State of Württemberg, was certainly preoccupied with his own name. Mitnacht is an adaptation of the German word for midnight, and midnight became the ruling force in his life. He was married at midnight. He ate his main meal at midnight. He signed all official documents at midnight, named his dog Midnight, hired servants named Midnight, and among many other things,
0: Doc.
1: I hope you enjoyed that story. Now I'd like to share some information about this week's writer, Sir Algernon Henry Blackwood was born in 1869 in what is now a part of London, England. During his life, he published several collections of short stories, and is generally considered to be one of the most consistently good writers of weird fiction. He was a major influence for American writers such as H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. Algernon Blackwood died on December 10, 1951 at age 82 after suffering several strokes. He was cremated and his ashes were spread at the Swiss Alps by his nephew. Next on the program is this week's episode of the Magnus Archives. This week, we have the statement of Jane Prentiss, who has been mentioned multiple times in the series' inaugural season. I'll be back for the C Block after the episode.
3: Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives, episode thirty two. Hi. of Jane Prentice regarding a wasp's nest in her attic. Original statement given February 23rd, 2014. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I All the time, deep beneath my skin, where the bone sits, enshrined in flesh, I feel it. Something, not moving, but that wants to move, wants to be free, it itches, and I don't think I want it. I don't know what to do. You can't help me. I don't think so, at least, but whatever it is that calls to me, that wants me for its own, it hates you. It hates what you are and what you do, and if it hates you, then maybe you can help me. If I want to be helped? I don't know if I do. You must understand it sings so sweetly, and I need it, but I am afraid it isn't right. And I need help. I need it to be seen, to be seen in the cold light of knowledge is anathema to the things that crawl and slither and swarm in the corners and the cracks, in the pitted holes of the hive. You can't see it, of course. It isn't real. Not like you or I are real. It's more of an everywhere, a feeling. Are you familiar with phobia that disgusted fear at holes, irregular honeycombed holes, makes you feel that itch in the back of your mind, like the holes are there, too, in your own brain, rotten and hollow and swarming. Is that real? I'm sorry, I know I'm meant to be telling you what happened, what brought me to this place, this place of books and learning, of sight and beholding. I'm sorry. I should. I will. I... I haven't slept in some time. I can't sleep. My dreams are crawling and many-legged, not just slithering and burrowing, though it is the burrowing draws me. They always sing that song of flesh. I hope you will forgive me for such a rambling story. I hope you will forgive me for a great many things. As it may be, I do worse. I have that feeling, that instinct that squirms through your belly. There will be great violence done here. And I bleed into that violence. Do you know, I wonder, as I watch you sitting there through the glass, eating a sandwich? Do you know where you are? You called me dear. Have a seat, dear. You can write it down, dear. Take as much time as you need, dear you truly know the danger you are in? There is a wasp's nest in my attic, a fat, sprawling thing that crouches in the shadowed corner. It thrums with life and malice. I could sit there for hours watching the swirls of pulp and paper on its surface. I have done. It is not the patterns that enthrall me. I'm not one of those fools chasing fractals, no. It's what sings behind them. Sings that I am beautiful. Sings that I am a home. That I can be fully consumed by what loves me. I don't know how long the nest has been there. It's not even my house, I just live there some sweaty old man thinks he owns it taking money for my presence as though it will save him i used to worry about it you know i remember before the dreams i would spend so long worrying about that money about how i could afford to live there now i know that whatever the old man thinks as he passes about the house with brow crinkled and mouth puckered in disapproval it is not his It has a thousand truer owners who shift and live and sing within the very walls of the building. He does not even know about the wasp's nest. I wonder how long he has not known. How many years it has been there. Have you ever heard of the filarial worm? Mosquitoes gift it with their kiss and it grows and grows. It stops water moving round the human body, right, makes limbs and bellies swell and sag with fluid. Now, when I look at that fat, sweaty sack, I think about it, and the voice sings of showing him what a real parasite can do. How many months has it been like this? Was there a time before? There must have been. I remember a life that was not itching, not fear, not neck to sweet song. I had a job. I sold crystals. They were clean and sharp and bright, and they did not sing to me, though I sometimes said they did. We would sell the stones to smiling young couples with colour in their hair. I remember. Before I found the nest, someone new came. His name was Oliver, and he would look at me so strangely, not with lust or affection or contempt, but with sadness, such a deep sadness, and once with fear. It didn't matter, because no one in the shop wanted to hear about the ants below it. I tried to tell them to explain, but they did not care. The pretty young things complained, and I left. That was when I still called myself a witch. wicker and paganism. I would spend my weekends at rituals by the Thames. I wanted something beyond myself, but could not stomach the priest or the imam or punjari of the churches. I knew better. I knew that it was not so simple as to call out to well-trodden gods. I never felt, from my rituals, anything except exhaustion and pride. I thought that those were my spiritual raptures. I wish, deep inside, below the itch, that they were still my raptures. I have touched something now, though, that all my talk of ley lines and mother goddesses could never have prepared me for. "'It is not a god, or if it is, then it is a dead god, "'decayed and clammy corpse flesh, brimming with writhing grave worms. "'When did I first hear it? "'It wasn't the nest, I'm sure of that. "'I never went in the attic. It was locked, and I didn't have a key. "'I spent a day sawing through the padlock with an old hacksaw. "'My hands were blistered by the end.' Why would I have done that if I didn't know what I would find? The face of the one who sang to me dwelling within the hidden darkness above me. I had seen no wasps. I know I hadn't. There are no wasps in the nest. So how else would I have known that I needed to be there, to be in the dark with it, if it had not already been singing to me? No, that's not right. The nest does not sing to me, it is simply the face, not the whole face, for the whole of the hive is infinite, an unending plane of wriggling forms swarming in and out of the distended paws and honeycombed flesh. The nest is nothing but paper. Was it the spiders? There were webs in the corners around the entryway into the attic. I would watch them scurry and disappear in between the wooden boards. Where are you going, little spiders? I would think. What are you seeing in the dark? Is it food? Prey? Predators? I wondered if it was the spiders that made the gentle buzzing song, but it was not. Webs have a song as well, of course. But it is not the song of the hive. I used to pick at my skin. It was a compulsion. I would spend hours in the bathroom staring as close as I could get to my face in the mirror, searching for darkened pores to squeeze and watch the congealed oil worm its way out of my skin. Often I would end with swollen red marks where it had become inflamed with irritation or infection. Did I hear the song then? Was it when I was a child? such a clear memory of a classmate telling me a blackhead was a hole in my face and if i didn't keep it clean it would grow and rot did i hear it then as that image lodged in my mind forever or was it last year passing by a strip of green they call a park near my house after the rain and watching a hundred worms crawl and squirm to the surface perhaps i've always heard it Perhaps the itch has always been the real me, and it was the happy, smiling Jane who called herself a witch and drank wine in the park when it was sunny. Maybe it was her who was the maddened illusion that hides the sick, squirming reality of what I am, of what we all are, when you strip away the pretence that there is more to a person than a warm, wet, Habitat for the billion crawling things that need a home, that love us in their way. I need to think, to clear my head, to try and remember, but remember what? I was lonely before, I know that. I had friends, at least I used to, but I lost them, or they lost me. Why was it? I remember shouting, recriminations, and I was abandoned. No idea why. The memories are a blur. I do remember that they called me toxic. I don't think I really knew what that meant, except that it was the reason that I was so painfully lonely. Was that it? Was I swayed and drawn simply by the prospect of being genuinely loved? Not loved as you would understand it. A deeper more primal love, a need as much as a feeling, love that consumes you in all ways. You can't help me. I'm sure of that now. I have tried to write it down, to put it into terms and words you could understand, and now I stare at it and not a word of it is even enough to fully describe the fact that I itch. Because itch is not the right word, there is no right word, because for all your institute and ignorance may lord the power of the word, it cannot even stretch to fully capture what I feel in my bones. What possible recourse could there be for me in your books and files and libraries, except more useless ink and dying letters?' I see now why the hive hates you. You can see it, and log it, and note its every detail, but you can never understand it. You rob it of its fear, even though your weak words have no right to do so. I do not know why the hive chose me, but it did, and I think that it always had. The song is loud and beautiful, and I am so very afraid. There is a wasp's nest in my attic. Perhaps it can soothe my itching soul. Um, Statement ends. This is, uh... Excuse me, reading that was, um... (coughs) Uh, while I am pleased that we have found the statement the Prentice gave the Institute, it answers far fewer of our questions than I would have hoped and gives us little new information about her than we had before, save for a snapshot of her mental condition before her hospital admission. We were already aware of her religious history and her breakdown over an ant infestation that apparently led to her termination from her work at the Good Energies Spiritual Supplies Shop in Archway. The wasp's nest is interesting. The paramedic's report claims that when they and the police responded to reports of screaming at Miss Prentice's flat on Prospero Road, they found her in a loft space, passed out, with her forearm buried up to the elbow in pulped organic matter. This could indeed have been a wasp's nest, I suppose, but no nearby residents reported to have seen any wasps in the area. Unfortunately, it could not be examined further, as later that night there was a fire that completely destroyed the flat and killed the landlord, Arthur Nolan. The fire service determined he had fallen asleep with a lit cigarette, due to the fact that he was found sitting in the remains of an armchair, with no sign he had made any attempt to escape. Miss Prentice was taken to the emergency department at Whittington Hospital, but she was already showing signs of the infestation that would characterise her later appearances. Six hospital staff were attempting to treat and sedate her when many of the worms were violently expelled from her body. They quickly burrowed through the soft tissue of the medical personnel, eyes, tongue, etc., and into the brain, killing them after roughly a minute and a half. She then walked calmly out of the door to A&E. A nurse attempted to run, but in his panic, he tripped on the stairs and broke his neck. Then she was gone. The Institute was consulted, as apparently during her admission she had claimed that she was being possessed. But it was decided the situation was medical in nature, and our involvement was dropped in favour of what I can only describe as a cover-up. If we'd known about this statement, perhaps things might have been different, but... Here we are. Still, anyone who's familiarized themselves with her file could tell you this. We still don't have any evidence that Prentice is actually paranormal. It could just be an unknown aggressive parasite. There are weird things out there that are perfectly natural. It's not, though. I know it's not natural. Somehow I... I feel it. I'm sorry. My academic detachment seems to have fled me. Something in this statement has got to me a bit. I'm I'm going to go lie down. End recording. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell and Mike LeBeau and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening.
2: Quinet never really said, let them eat cake. The actual words in translation were, let them eat rolls, believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you a story about a toothache that led to a massacre. A toothache that affected Queen Namasol of Uganda, Africa, also affected the entire population of a neighboring province called Vuma. The Queen, in her anguish of pain, consulted some tribal witches, who said the Queen's toothache would be cured if she put the entire population of Buma to death. The witch's weird cure was tried. 25,000 people were driven into Lake Victoria and drowned. But mass murder didn't cure the toothache. Believe it or not. <laughs>
1: And that concludes this week's episode of the Magnus Archives, Hive. Before we get to this week's all-time radio selection, I would like to take the time to remind you about all the other programming here on Radio for Humans. First, we have the Tim Cormo show, Monday and Wednesday mornings at 8.30 Eastern, and Tuesday nights in primetime at 8. Next, we have time for Go to Bed with Kenny Pick and the Seuss every Thursday night at 7. Immediately following that is From the Bunker with Jody Hamilton. Friday nights we have It Came From Cleveland starting at 7pm and Radio Mayonaka with DJ Yorokun at 11pm. Saturday nights we have Paul's Memory Bank starting at 8 Eastern with a repeat Monday night at the same time. Please note that all station times are Eastern. Next on this week's program we have our old time radio selection. This week we have an adaptation of another Algernon Blackwood story. Called In the Fog. It is presented to us by CBS Radio Mystery Theater and was originally broadcast on August 17, 1977. I'll be back after to close out the show. <laughs>
4: Marshall, When you join me, I can promise you an experience in suspense that can arise from many sources. Sometimes it is natural conflict, and at others, the supernatural. We delve into the strange and the unusual. That is the shadowy world we explore, a world of minds and souls slightly askew. What we're about to hear is an adaptation of a story written by Algernon Blackwood about a man shell-shocked in the First World War. A not uncommon experience, but dreadful for the victim. His name is Terry O'Reilly. Captain O'Reilly. Wow. Our mystery story, In the Fog, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Roy Windsor and stars Gordon Gould. It is sponsored in part by Buick Motor Division and XLAX. I'll be back shortly with act one if you've been taking notice of some of our 1977 buicks and if you've been thinking wouldn't this summer be a great time to own one it is announcing buick's open door policy an open invitation to come in and inspect examine and really discover why the 1977 buicks are selling better than any other buicks in history and to discover that this is a great time to buy a new buick your buick dealer is open to reasonable offers buick's open door policy at your buick dealer
5: Hemorrhoid sufferers, the proof is here. Proof from leading doctors and hospitals of a medication that helps shrink swelling of hemorrhoidal tissues caused by inflammation. It's doctor-tested, hospital-tested Preparation H. Hundreds of tests prove that in many cases Preparation H gives prompt temporary relief of occasional pain and itch and helps shrink swollen, inflamed hemorrhoidal tissues. Preparation H, ointment or suppositories, use only as directed. Doctor-tested, hospital-tested Preparation H helps shrink swollen hemorrhoidal tissues.
6: You can come out ahead with Chase
5: behind you If you think all banks treat your savings about the same surprise! Introducing the new Chase Savings Center A special place in every branch of the Chase Bank packed with saving surprises And at every Chase Savings Center, there's a Chase Savings Advisor Ready to give you the surprise of your life savings surprise! You can get up to 10 years of savings interest paid in advance there's a new Chase Savings Bond that pays more interest than Uncle Sam. You may qualify to save on taxes by saving for retirement, and there are lots more saving surprises. So give your savings the Chase advantage at the new Chase Savings Center. Talk to our savings advisor. You'll be surprised at how much more your savings can do. You can take a- penalty required for early withdrawal. Member
4: FDIC. The autumn is crimson and gold. There's beauty here that'll touch your soul. Virginia is for lovers. Virginia just isn't the same in the fall. The golden sunsets come a little earlier to the long, summer-warm Virginia beaches. The candlelit concerts that light up the night in Williamsburg seem a little more romantic. The Blue Ridge Mountains turn burgundy and amber. Monticello, Mount Vernon, and the plantations along the James River turn gold under the harvest moon. Virginia isn't the same in the fall. The summer crowds are gone, and it belongs completely to you. Plan your fall vacation by visiting the Virginia State Travel Service in Rockefeller Plaza. She's out here waiting for you In the fall while there is so much to do Virginia shock is a psychoneurotic condition like hysteria. The stress of warfare can affect some men to the point where they become disoriented. They cannot tell what is real and what is unreal. They are treated by psychotherapy in a sanitarium until their minds are healed and they're able to return to life outside their safe and protected world. Slowly but surely, Captain O'Reilly dreamed less and less of the horrors he had seen as he explains... I cracked up. I won't frighten you with the last battle when they came at us in our trenches. The carnage was awful. Only a handful of us were left. I became a screaming idiot, and I was shipped home to a sanitarium near Cambridge, and a doctor Henry. Now uh, you think you're up to it, Captain? I I think so. If you begin to feel any uncertainty, just go to a policeman and have him telephone me. Okay. You made good progress. All of us are pleased. You just think about the present and the past will recede. Phantoms exist only in the mind. They're up to you to control. I'm trying to, Dr. Henry. Now, your uh, friends in Boston, what's their name? Collard? Yes, Jeff and May. I wrote down their telephone number. Here it is. Ah, good. I won't need it, I'm sure. Now, when you reach their house, it... Oh, it's on Beacon Hill. How oh, nice. Well, after you arrive, will you telephone me? Sure. Jeff's a buddy of mine. He got shot up pretty bad. It was when I saw him mowed down that I... But there he is, he and his wife. Doing well, I'd say, with that Beacon Hill address. Hmm? Mm. <laughs> now, your visit is a big step forward to you. Are you going by subway? Yes, from Harvard Square. Well, it's a short and pleasant ride. Enjoy yourself. I see you're dressed for rain. That's wise. Well, it's predicted. It's hot, and a cold front is coming in from Maine. We'll get rain. Oh, maybe fog. I can do without fog. It, it reminds me of gas drifting through the barbed wire toward our trenches. I left Dr. Henry. He and his staff had been wonderful to me. I wore my hat and raincoat and I had the feeling that everyone was watching me. You know the feeling, like you're an intruder. Well, nothing happened. In the subway, I read the car cards, and then I got off and climbed upstairs to the street. Fog, thick as sheep's wool. I didn't know where to turn. Uh, I'm sorry, officer. I I can't see a thing. Oh, that's all right. Me neither. It rolled in about half an hour ago. Where am I? Tremont Street. Yeah, I, I wouldn't move around very much. Most cars are to stand still, but there's always some nut who tries to drive. They wouldn't see you and you're hit. No, I'm not moving. But I'm expected that my friend would. Oh, well they'll and... wait. If they got windows, they can see you'd be stuck. They're on Beacon Hill. Uh-huh. Across the public gardens in that sea of fog. No. You stick around a while. The fog lift. I can make it. Well, suit yourself. I I, I just have to reach my friends. But wait a few minutes. You wander around through the park, you could stumble into the lake. Uh, Are you all right? huh Oh, yeah, sure. You look kind of worked up. Well, I, I, I was in the war, and... Uh, Hello? The fog... Hello? Huh? Oh, help me. Help
6: me. Oh, oh office. Officer. Oh, you have to help oh, me. no. What is it, Liz? I'm lost.
4: Well, so am I. So oh. this man here. Now, no one can find his way in this thick fog.
6: No, no, no. But I said I'd be there, and he'll be waiting.
4: Well, my advice is to stay put. No, no,
6: I, no I, I have to get to Morley Street on Beacon Hill. Oh, that's
4: where I'm going, too.
6: Oh, then let's find it, please.
4: Right. I warn you, lady, you go groping around in this oh. mess and you can be hurt. I'll go with you. Oh, Remember, I warned you. I hope I don't see you in the morgue. <laughs> Hold my hand. Yes. Tight. Yes, sir. Come oh. on, now.
6: Oh, oh, you're very kind. That's all
4: right. I don't know the hill except it's above the gardens.
6: Oh, if I could only see. Yeah, it's
4: unreal. Well, it's
6: a phantom world. I, I hate it.
4: So do I. Hold on. Uh, what's your name?
6: Oh, uh, well, well. Unimportant. I, I, oh, I, I don't mean to be rude, but... We'll, we'll, we'll never see each other again.
4: I, Even in the uh, fog, I can see how beautiful you are.
6: Well, thank you.
4: Holding your hand does me good. You're real.
6: Oh, I should think so.
4: I mean, I'm Captain O'Reilly. Army. Shipped out for shell shock.
6: Oh. Well, are you... Uh, should you be out? I mean, isn't there a, a sanitary... i no, I'm fine. What did you mean? I'm I'm real.
4: Not an illusion. That's what I suffer from. Not knowing what's real and what isn't.
6: Now you know. Sure. Oh.
4: It's slow going, but if we stick to the path, we'll be all right. Y-
6: y- your doctor said you could come into Boston alone?
4: Sure. Dr. Henry. Hey. You're not afraid of me, are you? Oh, no. We're never dangerous. Except maybe to ourselves. Like you reach for something you see and it isn't there that's why it's good to hold your hand don't be nervous we'll find your house
6: but will i be in time
4: inching along seemed like it took hours instead of 20 minutes we went uphill and the path ended and there was a sidewalk and a curb you couldn't see the narrow georgian houses across the street they were just shadows behind the white fog, like dark cloth under thin white. And here and there, I saw pinpoints of yellow lights.
6: Oh, uh, Morley Street, this way, to the right. Hold on. Oh, no, no, I, I can find my way now. Well, I'll
4: see you to your door. No, please don't. There's no need. But I'm going there myself. My friends, uh, the collards, you may know them, they live on Morley. Oh, you'll, you'll find them. I hope so. What I thought was, if you don't mind, I'd telephone them and tell Jeff that. Oh no, no, I I, I can't let you do that. Uh,
6: the the telephone service has been cut off. Oh. Uh, I I will. I'm leaving Boston tomorrow. Uh, we are, that is. Oh. And and the house is is uh, closed.
4: Well, my number is one forty one. You can head me in the right direction. Oh,
6: of course. I'm ninety nine. Oh, th- there it is. Uh, oh, thank heaven Oh, I'm so late Oh, please be there
4: The woman broke away from me and ran through the open iron mail gate I hurried after her She entered the house through an open door And that struck me as peculiar I followed Inside I found myself in a dark hallway I could hear her steps as she ran upstairs And I called Hello? Please go away Please I'm coming up The door was wide open, and you don't know who's in the house. Wait for me.
6: I'm nervous, Jeff. You'd think your friend Terry would have telephoned.
4: Well, if he could, but he doesn't know Boston.
6: I hope he didn't panic.
4: He could have. Dr. Henry says that he he thinks the captain's ready to rejoin society. Oh, May, you'll like him. Except for Terry O'Reilly, I'd be dead. Ah, well, maybe we'd better telephone Dr. Henry and the police. Well, let's give it a few more minutes. The uh, Fog seems to be lifting a little.
6: I don't like to think of him wandering around out there lost.
4: Oh, everyone out there is lost, darling. Nothing moves in fog this heavy, and that's that's really bad for Terry. You know, there's something spooky about fog. Uh-huh. Even a normal person sees things in it. Ghosts, figures of the imagination.
6: Well, I- I've got a funny feeling about your army, buddy. All right. Fog or no fog, he ought to have been here by now. He's over an hour late. Well,
4: Jeff. the number's on the desk by the phone. It's Dr. Henry's. I'm going out on the stoop. Maybe I'll see him stumbling along. <laughs>
6: It's Mrs. Collard, Doctor. It's about Captain O'Reilly. He's an hour late and oh, I'm very be-
4: that's disturbing.
6: The problem is the fog. The fog? Boston is socked in.
4: Oh, well then that relieves me. He must be waiting for it to lift. It's raining here in Cambridge. When the fog lifts, he'll turn up.
6: But it's been
4: an hour, Doctor. Now, don't you worry, Missus Collard. The captain knows what to do if he becomes confused. He has my number, and I've told him not to hesitate to speak to a policeman. You just sit tight.
6: But don't you think we should notify the police? Well, yes, maybe that is a good idea. Tell you what, I'll do that, and I'll come in. Oh, you don't need to no, do no,
4: that. No, that's all right. Captain's a special patient of mine. I'll be in as soon as I can get to your house. You know, this experience could be critical for him. He's well recovered but being lost could terrify him and send him back into his world of phantoms again It was very dark in the hallway I felt along the wall and entered a parlor There was a milky kind of light coming through the high windows and I made out a candlestick I was conscious of my heart beating hard not from effort but from the eerie house I struck a match and lit the candlestick and started upstairs.
7: Hello up there.
4: Are you all right? (laughs) Holy delito. Where are you? Answer me. I'm coming up. When the woman screamed, I froze. I knew something awful had happened. I took the stairs two at a time, the candle flickering in front of me. There were several closed doors in the hallway. I tried the one nearest the street. I opened it. The room was lived in. I went toward a bed. And then... Murdered. Good Lord. Stabbed through the heart. Coincidence? It is frowned upon by many, but it is a fact of life. For want of a nail, the shoe is lost. For want of a shoe, the horse is lost. For want of a horse, the rider is lost. What else is that except coincidence? Who is responsible for the want of a nail? How was the doctor to know that when Captain O'Reilly emerged from the subway in Boston, that he would walk into a thick fog? Coincidence? When I return with Act Two, we'll find out where coincidence next led Captain O'Reilly. I love you, love you, love you, love you, babe. I love dancing with you, Julie.
6: Oh, hell, I love you so much. Oh, Julie. Could I tell you something wonderful, Hal? Anything. There's a new lemon juice around. What? It's Minute Maid 100% pure lemon juice, and it's fantastic. Wow,
4: oh, well, that's wonderful.
6: Now I don't have to cut and slice and squeeze to get lemon juice. I see. Julie, could we go the to... The freezer case. Hmm? It's just pure lemon juice, so it's frozen for freshness in your grocer's freezer case. Oh, yeah. And best part of all... Yes. Minute Maid doesn't have any preservative.
4: Ju- Ju- Julie, I want to kiss you. You'll notice
6: the taste.
4: New lipstick?
6: No, of pure
4: lemon juice squeezed from six fresh lemons. Ju- Julie, ju- Julie, listen to me. We're going to dance by the singer. We're going to ask him to play our song. Nod your head if you agree. Okay. Hi there. Hi. Julie, tell him.
6: Do you know there's a new lemon juice around? It?
4: Sure. There's a new lemon juice around made by Minute Maid, baby. Minute Maid, 100% pure lemon juice in your grocer's freezer. Now fresh lemon juice doesn't have to come in a lemon. For dinner. Hey mom, what you got?
7: What's for dinner? ShopRite has the answer. Fresh ground shuck, any size package, just 77 cents a pound. Great for your burgers, your meatballs, and juicy meatloaf. Save two on ShopRite coffee, a one-pound can, just $2.69. ShopRite butter, one-pound dollar 9 And it's the third big week of ShopRite's manager's sale with super values in every aisle. Before you decide what's for dinner, check your nearby ShopRite. Prices available only at ShopRite's in Long Island, Queens, Brooklyn, and New Jersey, north of Trenton, except Montague. Do, 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 do. She loves her family She wants the best She does all that she can do She lets ShopRite do the rest Hey ma, what's for dinner? ShopRite has the answer
3: mm-hmm.
4: I got a question for you. You ready?
7: Yeah. Sure. Okay. What
4: is it? How do you top a Dairy Queen Sunday?
6: Well, I like strawberry. I like chocolate. Pineapple.
4: Uh-huh. And what about you? Mmm,
6: butterscotch.
8: Okay, you're
4: all wrong. Whoa. Whoa. wrong. What wrong? Mean? I mean you can't top a Dairy Queen Sunday. Because uh. they're just about the most scrumped thing there is. And I'm never gonna stop eating them. And you know what else I won't do? What? 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 I won't stop going to the Dairy Queen with you. Yay! I'm gonna Coincidence is remarkable because of the lack of apparent connection between a group of events. That's how it seems. And why not? You meet someone you haven't seen for years. You may renew the relationship with good or bad results. And all because of an accidental meeting. When you look back on what followed, how can you explain it? An unexpected meeting. A coincidence. Well, Captain O'Reilly met a stranger. A woman as lost as he. When he followed her upstairs, he found her in a bedroom murdered. To say I was shocked isn't strong enough. Almost without realizing it, I removed my hat. The dead woman was no illusion. This was real. Selfishly, I knew that this was good for me. I could distinguish between the real and the unreal. That gave me enough confidence to leave, and I left fast, running down the stairs. Then I heard a door closing... For a moment, I hesitated Then I went outside into the fog Hello there Oh, hello (laughs) Don't be afraid I'm a physician, Dr. Sprague Oh? Is uh, something the matter? Can I be of help? No, no, I... uh, Well, I'm lost It's uh, a little more than that, isn't it? You really are a doctor? Oh, yes, I live close by why don't you come with me until you calm down and get control of yourself? I'm late for my friends. Five minutes won't make any difference. Uh, your name? O'Reilly. Captain O'Reilly. I... Well, I-, I could telephone from your house, couldn't I? Of course. You've uh, recently been discharged from service, Captain. Uh, yes. Shellshock? You can tell that. Oh, shrewd guess. You're distraught and you're... Perspiring. I'm almost cured. I'm going to be okay. Yes, I'm sure of it. Thanks. So is Dr. Henry. Oh, yes, the uh, doctor with the sanitarium in Cambridge, of course. you will be worried about me. So will my friends. Well, the telephone. Yes, yes, that's a, a good idea. You're very considerate, Dr. Sprague. By the way, how did you get here to the hill? Well, my friends live on Morley Street. I I walked through the public gardens. From Tremont Street?
3: Hmm.
4: How could you see? I couldn't. We uh, we held on to each other, and we managed. I don't know how. We? Some woman. Uh, this is her house. I I saw her to the door. You didn't follow her in? Uh, she just flew in and up the stairs. Uh, I called. Uh, well, you see, the front gate and the door were open, and I was afraid for her. That's quite an experience, Captain. Yes. First the fog, and then this, uh, this woman. Uh, who... Uh, Who was she, by the way? I don't know. Well, she was frantic. She was meeting someone, and she was afraid she would be too late. Ah, poor thing. Well, come with me. All right. You, uh you didn't follow the woman into the house. Well, I. I asked because you said that the gate and the door were open. The gate is still open, but the front door, Captain. But the front door is now closed. He's been seen I'm relieved A policeman spoke with him When he came out of the subway On Tremont Terry seemed to be all right And then some woman came along And they headed into the public gardens Toward the hill A woman? Uh, That's what the policeman said A stranger Uh, She was lost too And uh, was acting pretty wild You looked around? Yeah, yeah The fog isn't that bad now It's begun to drizzle I walked around the block Calling his name
6: Well, now what do we do now?
4: Nothing. The police
8: are on the lookout for him, and we know that Terry is somewhere in the neighborhood.
6: That's funny about this woman.
8: Why, well, what's funny about her? She's not imaginary.
4: The cops saw her, and these saw them set out together. The doctor saying the door was closed. That bothered me. I knew I'd been in the woman's house. I didn't know what to do. The right thing was to notify the police. But would they believe I hadn't murdered the woman? We reached Doctor Sprague's house in a few minutes. He led me into a handsome study. Oh, uh, you want to telephone your friends, or may I do that for you? Have you have you the number? Yeah, I wrote it down. Here it is. Ah, yes, thank you. Uh, operator, give me one nine six one, please. Uh, you can just relax. Well, it's mighty nice of you to take me in. I'm oh, <laughs> glad to be of help. Jeff Collard speaking. Oh, this is Dr. Sprague. Captain O'Reilly is with me. Oh, is he all right? Oh, perfectly. I'll send him on his way in five minutes. Thank you.
8: I'm at 141 Morley. And
4: uh, he really is all right? Yes. I met him on the street and noticed he was upset, so I brought him here to relax. He'll be along shortly. Where are you, Doctor? I I can come for him. There's no need to do that. Well, I'd like to, if you don't mind. Uh, Your address? Ninety-nine more day.
8: Oh, for heaven's sake, that's only a block away.
4: I'll be right along. And thank you, Doctor. Ah, you feel relieved. Yes. I know they've been worried. So, Dr. Henry allowed you to come into Boston? Yes. Jeff Collard's visited me several times at the sanitarium, and last week he invited me to his house for dinner. Dr. Henry approved. It all worked well until I... Stepped into that fog. And you were afraid that you might retreat into your, well, how shall I put it, your other world? You know about shell shock. Quite a good deal. You, uh, you experienced a dreadful shock, didn't you? Pardon me? Something about that house and the strange woman. Why don't you tell me about it? In confidence, of course. I'm a doctor. Keeping it bottled up could be bad for you. What about the open gate and the open door and the strange woman, Captain? I I told him everything. How I bumped into the cop and the woman coming up. The stumbling walk through the public garden, right up to the house and into it and into that bedroom. And the woman stabbed to death. He listened intently extraordinary. It was horrible. And she was so beautiful. I can smell her perfume now. Poor woman. Yes. How odd. Worse than odd. And I don't know what to do about it. Oh, there's nothing to do about it. But the police... You didn't murder the woman, did you, Captain? Good Lord, no. Then you'll be wise to forget about it. She'll be found, I imagine, and somebody will be suspected and hopefully caught. When I said odd... I meant odd in a coincidental sense. Oh? How's that? You have wisely unburdened yourself to me, so I'll do the same for you. I have a story that's very similar to yours. I'd like to hear it. I had a friend who was a professor at the college. Unlike most professors, he was quite wealthy, and he lived here on Beacon Hill. When war was declared, he enlisted. He, he must have felt strongly about it. Oh, he did but, uh, to go on, this friend had a had a young and beautiful wife. They were devoted. He loved her very deeply. I loved that way before I was called up. Ah, you're married. No I was overseas too long. She married someone else. And that hurt. Not as bad as a man can be hurt by an unfaithful wife, Captain. Is that what happened? My friend closed his house up on the hill. His wife took smaller quarters. He'd been in France for six months when he learned what was going on back home. She took up with someone else? She was young. She was beautiful. She was alive. But you knew her, Doctor. How could you allow her to take up with another man? It was I who wrote to my friend about what I I suspected. Did he divorce her? No, he got leave to return for a few weeks, and he... He murdered her. Good Lord. And the other man? What happened to him? My friend waited in his old house where his wife and the other man used to meet. The man never showed up for their rendezvous. Too bad. Wasn't it? And she had left the front door open for him. Like... Like... Exactly. What did you say the woman said as she ran into the house? Uh, something like... I can't be late. I can't. And I can't miss him. She was afraid maybe he'd been there and left. Uh, well, that's the impression I got. And your friend said the front door was open? That's what he told me. The, the only difference between the stories is that... that I walked in not as the woman's lover. No. As a stranger. <laughs>
6: him back Jeff.
4: No, no, I, I I didn't find him.
6: But Dr. Sprague gave you his address and it's only down the block.
4: Well I went to 99. It was closed and dark from top to bottom. Well that's peculiar. Yeah, isn't it? I, I don't understand it at all. You tried the bell. Oh, sure. No luck. Then the next door neighbor came out, Mrs. Lawrence. I, I know her slightly. She said the house had been closed when the professor enlisted and that his wife had moved away. I asked if she knew of Dr. Sprague. She said she'd never heard of him. How funny. There's no doctor living in the block that she knows of. But
6: well, why would Dr. Sprague tell you that... Well, it beats me. And now we still don't know where Terry might be.
4: Uh, something very strange is going on. I I just sense it. But you said Dr. Sprague sounded perfectly
6: normal. Well, he did. Well, maybe you'd better find that policeman and go back to ninety-nine. I'll come with you.
8: No, 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 darling. You you stay here. Don't forget that Dr. Henry's on his way in.
6: Oh, I would forgotten.
8: And who knows? Terry just might show up.
6: Well, if he does, you'll take us out to dinner. Mine
4: is ruined. Oh, it's a nightmare. Now, what if there isn't a Dr. Sprague? What?
6: Why would he say he was if he wasn't? Well, Terry had to be with him. Or, or how would the man know us or our telephone number? Uh, and what's the matter with you, Jeff? I, you think Dr. Sprague's a, a, a fictitious character?
4: Well, maybe.
6: But why? You, you think this could be a hoax?
4: Who knows? The few minutes I spent with Dr. Sprague calmed me down. And confessing my discovery of the murdered woman did relieve my mind. Jeff and May knew where I was, so that worry was taken care of. I liked Sprague, and I was grateful he happened along when I ran out of that house. I said as much, and he said... Oh, coincidence, Captain. I like the fog. I often stroll around in it. Well, most people hate it. Well, I don't. It gives me a feeling of solitude. It encases me in myself. Shuts out the world. Yeah, well, i better be going along, Doctor. Yes, I suppose you should. Well, let me help you with your coat. Oh, th- My hat. What? Huh? Good Lord. I left my hat in that room. The police will find my hat and trace it to me. Why, is your name in it? No, it's just an ordinary felt hat, worn. Well, the police will know that someone murdered the woman and left the hat, but how could it be identified as yours? But I'll be missing a hat, and somebody will ask me about it. I'd right, then tomorrow in Cambridge, buy another. No, 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 wait a minute. I have a better idea. Take this one of mine. Oh, I couldn't... Of do course it. you can. I have several. Why not? You're very trusting, Dr. Sprague. How so? What if I did murder that woman? Oh, my dear boy, I'm convinced that you didn't. What motive could you have had? Yeah, none. I only saw her face for a few minutes. And she'd be the last person I'd harm. No, I wanted to help her. Someone else killed her. Someone who was hiding in that house. As I ran down the stairs, I heard a door shut on the second floor. You're lucky you didn't meet up with him. I hadn't thought of that. You're right. I could have been stabbed the way she was (laughs) Yes, quite a story you're going to have for Dr. Henry Mine and yours Whatever happened to the man the wife was going to run away with? Ah, my friend would like to know I suppose that man did run away Captain O'Reilly, I doubt if we will meet again, but I wish you well You know, this experience has been good for you I think so, too And uh, don't forget your hat Your hat? (laughs) Thanks My alibi for something I didn't do I wish I knew who did. Who'd murder a beautiful woman like that? Someone she had deeply offended, Captain. All of us are two persons. That's a generalization, but I think it's true. We appear to each other as one kind of person. Then there's the inner person. A criminal does not have to look like what we think he should look like. Everyone is capable of committing a crime those that do, something snaps in the mind and triggers it. More when I return with Act Three.
8: Now
5: True
4: Value
8: hardware stores are offering a mobile home for your tools. Hi, Pat Summerall to tell you about the Master Mechanic Roller Tool Cabinet and Matching Tool Chest. Because the cabinet is on wheels, you can roll your tools right to the job. Brakes on two of the wheels stop the cabinet from running away. The tool chest can be carried separately by the two side-mounted handles or roll right along on top of the roller cabinet. The matching set is available exclusively at True Value Hardware Stores. And the tool chest and cabinet together provide the right amount of space to hold a mechanic's complete tool kit. Bulky tools or large spare parts fit in the large storage compartment or three medium-sized drawers of the roller cabinet. Smaller tools and parts fit in the six smaller drawers of the tool chest. And all the drawers lock for tool security get the master mechanic matching roller tool cabinet and chest exclusively at participating true value hardware stores and home centers true value more than just a name it's always been their way of doing business so much
3: flair,
4: so Touch
8: of class. When your Lincoln Mercury dealer starts talking about clearance of his 77 models, it's different than anybody else's clearance. It's clearance with a touch of class.
7: Just a touch of class.
8: At Lincoln Mercury, we don't give you clearance deals on cars somebody didn't want, but on the best-selling cars in Lincoln Mercury history, the best, we'll give you touch of class clearance deals on luxurious Lincoln Continentals and distinctive Continental Mark V's. The kind of deals you've always dreamed of on a car you'd be proud. To to own Plus
2: a touch of class
8: today many prices are going up but lincoln mercury 77 clearance prices may never be as low we're getting ready for 1978 with great deals at great prices on great selling
7: cars
8: hurry to the lincoln mercury sign of success and talk to the dealer with a touch of class
7: If I can make great-tasting lemonade, anybody can. My secret, Borden Prize, the first lemonade-flavored drink mixed with real citrus pulp. I measure the Borden Prize, add some cold water, pop in a few ice cubes, and zap. I've got lemonade that looks and tastes and drowns my thirst like I slaved over those little lemons myself. Get some Borden Prize with real citrus pulp. Remember, one easy-to-carry-home can makes ten quarts of delicious lemonade. That's economical, and certainly more convenient than carrying bottles and cans. Prize Lemonade also wants to help WOR listeners enjoy these remaining days of summer. Send in the Prize Lemonade label or the printed words, Prize Lemonade, to WOR, and you may win four tickets to Fabulous Great Adventure Amusement Park. Everyone wins something because all entries will be mailed a money-saving 30-cent coupon for Borden Prize Lemonade. So send those labels to Prize Lemonade, W-O-R, New York, 10018. Winners will be notified by mail. Offer ends August 28th.
4: victim of shell shock in the first world war nicely recovering and about ready to return to normal life then fog leads him into an experience that would terrify a sane person the fog is frightening in itself but then there's the stranger the nameless beautiful woman and the discovery in her closed down house that she's been murdered despite what captain o'reilly has told us can we overlook him as the killer he could have committed murder thanked Dr. Sprague once more and put on my coat and his hat and stepped outside. It was raining now and I could see where I was. He had told me which way to turn to reach Jeff Collard's house. So I went through his iron rail gate and turned to my left. And coming toward me was the policeman. Well, well, we keep on meeting. You uh, are Captain O'Reilly, right? Yes. You've got everyone in town looking for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Dr. Henry called on the police, and your friend's been out in the street calling your name. I've caused a lot of trouble. <laughs> You're kind of special, Captain. Uh, Dr. Henry got a little worried that, lost in the fog, you, you might have well, lost your bearings. Well, I did, but uh, Dr. Sprague took me in and... I'm okay now. Well, I'll walk you to your friend's and telephone headquarters from there. Is, is that all right? Of course. The uh, woman find her house? The... Oh, oh yes, I, I guess so. Why, the guess. You were with her, weren't you? Well, through, through the public gardens. Then she thanked me and ran down the street. Oh, well, so she got home all right. I suppose so. I don't know. She was pretty tensed up. Uh, she, she was meeting someone. Uh, that's what she said. Uh, you remember what I told you over on Tremont? Now, if you'd listened to me and waited until the fog thinned out, you'd have saved yourself a lot of aggravation. Well, you're found, so we'll forget it. Oh, I uh, beg your pardon? Yes. Am I near 141? I can't quite make out the numbers. Dr. Henry? Why yes, oh well, you must be Mrs. Collard.
6: Yes, May Collard. Please come in. I'm so glad you came.
4: Oh, hasn't uh, Captain O'Reilly turned up?
6: Uh, come in. No, no, he hasn't arrived. But but a doctor Sprague said Terry'd be along directly.
4: Well, who is that? Who's Doctor Sprague?
6: Oh, uh, just just leave
4: your coat and hat here in the hall. Oh, uh, thank you, Miss Scott. Has uh, has something happened to the captain? No,
6: not not that we know of. Uh, my husband's wandering the block trying to find him. Doctor Sprague telephoned and and told Jeff that Terry was all right. Jeff said he'd walk down to ninety nine Sprague's address and, and walk Terry home. Oh, and the house is
4: closed tight and dark as a tomb. Oh, that's strange. Captain O'Reilly's somewhere in this block with a Dr. Sprague who isn't at the address he gave.
6: Yes. Now, what do you make of that? We're we're really terribly worried.
4: Well, now, don't be.
6: I have full confidence in the captain. But wandering through that fog, it it was like a covering of snow. You couldn't see five feet.
4: Well, how do you know he's here on Beacon Hill?
6: From this Dr. Sprague.
4: Uh Uh-huh. Maybe I'd better telephone the police. I told them to watch for him that I was coming into Boston. Maybe they have a report by now. It's hard to imagine walking through the public gardens if you can't see. (laughs) Uh, May I use your telephone? Oh, of course, back there in Jeff's study. Now, don't worry. Unless he's had an accident, I'm sure he's all right. Oh, Jeff, any luck? I can't find that policeman. Who's happened? Oh, Dr. Henry's? Ah, he's checking with the police. Well, I give up.
8: Let him come to us. I I don't know where else to look.
4: Ah, Mr. Collett. Oh, hello, Dr. Henry. Uh, there's no news yet, but everyone's got his eye open for the captain. Oh, hey. Ah, you must be May. Terry, thank goodness. Oh, buddy, hey, are we glad to see you? Come in, come in. My friend, Sergeant. Oh, uh, Marley, do you mind if I use your telephone, Mr. Collett? Well, come with me. Where did you find this big hulk? Coming out of Mr. Sprague's house. So he exists, huh? Well, Captain? I apologize for causing all this trouble, Doctor. You've had quite a day, Captain. Wait until you hear. You seem to have borne up well. I think what happened to me today has got me cured. Fog can be terrifying. Not as terrifying as finding a woman murdered.
6: Oh, no! What? You...
4: You found... It. Hey, hey, what, what? what's going on? You look shocked, May.
6: I... It's just relief that Terry showed up.
4: Sergeant O'Malley, thank you. Sure, sure. The alert's off, and I got a pat on the head from the chief. Good night, folks, and night. keep O'Reilly indoors. Well, what's going on here? I sit down, and I'll tell you what happened to me. It was horrible. There was this... Beautiful woman Ah, a spy story Together we found her house Right on your street Yeah, sounds exciting The front door was open and she ran in A few minutes later I found her Dead (gasps) Good Lord uh, Where'd she live? At number 99
6: Oh, that's... Isn't that where Dr. Sprague
4: lives? That's what he said But 99's closed No one lives there The owner enlisted and the wife moved away. Uh, Terry, you... I was in that house. I found the woman on the second floor. Stabbed to death. (laughs) I told them everything that had happened to me from the time that Dr. Henry had sent me on my way until I walked into their house a few minutes ago.
6: It's incredible, Terry.
4: Pretty weird, May. But it happened. Now what do I do? Yeah... The uh, body in the front room at 99 Morley I have to report it to the police, Jeff That's my duty Don't you agree, Dr. Henry? Well, uh, yes, but uh, then come the complications I know that, Doctor Who's going to believe me? I found the woman murdered I, a patient at your sanitarium Captain, tell me about this Dr. Sprague Mm, He was very nice a very nice man. And you walked into him when you ran out of the house at 99, is that right? Yes, that's it. I was badly upset. He saw that and tried to calm me down.
6: Jeff, Dr. Sprague couldn't have told you that he lived at
4: 99.
6: He just couldn't have. Yeah,
4: you could be right. But no one lives there. But there's a body in there, old buddy. Sprague invited you to his house. You walked, and he led the way? It was close by. I guess we walked for a few minutes. Oh, you don't know where, of course. No. The fog wasn't too bad, and it had begun to drizzle. I just kind of blindly followed where he led. Uh-huh. And when you got to his house? It was dark. There wasn't even a light on the stoop. I followed him into a kind of study with books and shelves on the walls, a desk and some chairs. You told him your story, and he told you his. Why?
6: Well, confession's good for the soul. But whose soul, Doctor? Uh,
4: what's, uh, what's your point, May?
6: Well, say that Dr. Sprague is a, a saint. He takes Terry in and, and hears his story and, and tells him almost the same one.
4: Yeah?
6: Why? That's what puzzles me. What if the story Dr. Sprague told was not about that friend of his, but about himself? What?
4: This Dr. Sprague murdered the woman? Oh, that's impossible
6: terry met him outside the house i know that but well
4: it's an idea no, no no it's 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 too fantastic darling you agree terry i i don't know so much has happened i'm pretty mixed up i did meet him outside May. but uh, could he have been in the house captain i didn't see him i didn't see anybody except the woman it was very dark in the house I don't think he exists. Now wait a minute, Jeff. No, no, I, I, I know he exists, old buddy. I mean, I don't think he's Doctor Sprague. Uh, that man is is somebody else. I, I, I know why he said he lived at ninety nine Morley. He, he wants the body found. But he said, he said that no one would ever know who murdered the woman. I, I was to forget it. He didn't suggest notifying the police. No, Doctor. Yeah, but giving me the address where there's a murdered woman is just about the same thing. Mm -hmm. He he knew my curiosity would be
6: aroused. Sergeant O'Malley will come forward about Terry wandering around like a ghost up and down Morley Street.
4: You know, if May's right, if this Sprague is the murderer, he could frame you, Terry. Oh, I I don't believe that for a second. He's a fine man. Captain, if you agree, I'll ask Sergeant O'Malley to step around and we'll enter that house at 99 Morley. All right. That's step one. If the woman can be identified, the police may find a clue to the person who stabbed her. The next hour was a week long. I told my story to Sergeant O'Malley, and he and Jeff and Dr. Henry entered the woman's house. They found the body all right. An ambulance took it to the morgue. Dr. Henry vouched for me, and the police thanked me for reporting the murder. I was placed in the doctor's custody until an investigation was made. O'Malley left the college house, and we sat down, pretty drained. You, uh, you feel better now, Terry? Yes, Jeff. I'm glad it's over with. Now you have nothing to worry about, Captain. It took courage to tell the truth. Well, he's never been short on that, Doctor.
6: You didn't have to tell us any of this, Terry. Why did you? You've let yourself in for a lot of questioning.
4: Well, it may sound funny, but I fell in love with that woman. That may sound silly, I know, but she was beautiful, and she wore lovely perfume. And there's more to what happened tonight than I've told. Let me tell you two things. As I went up the stairs to the bedroom, I heard the door close. The woman... Or the murderer? Not the woman. She had screamed. So it was the murderer who closed the door. He did the same thing when I got to the bottom of the stairs and flew out. Well, why didn't you mention that to O'Malley? Because of something else. When I got to the street and bumped into Sprague, I didn't have my hat. I'd left it in the woman's bedroom. But uh, there was no hat in the room when we were there. I left it there, Jeff.
6: It, It couldn't just vanish. My gracious, if your hat had been found... Oh, you'd
4: have been in for it, old buddy. That's hard evidence. But you were wearing a hat when you came in here, Captain. So I was. I told Sprague I'd left my hat on the woman's bed, and he said to forget it. And he offered me this one of his. Almost forced it on me. Just a moment. I'll show it to you. Here it is. So? Oh, it's uh, just an ordinary hat. And Sprague's hat was the same size as the one you left behind? Exactly the same size. And do you know why? Because this is my very own hat. You may have guessed, but I was sure of only one thing. Dr. Sprague, or whoever he was, did not intend to frame Captain O'Reilly. Weather is a factor in our behavior. Fog more so than other conditions because it's like a shroud. It deadens sound. It can lead you astray, often into the unexpected. And that is what we specialize in. The byways of life where a person by design or by accident may experience an adventure that will be unforgettable. I'll be back shortly.
6: I guess I'm lucky. My family's always been healthy. Oh, a touch of constipation now and then. But we've got x lax for that.
4: When you need a laxative, shouldn't your first
5: choice be the one more families buy than any other? That's today's X-Lax. Families like the chocolatey taste. You like the way X-Lax works, gently overnight for relief in the morning. Next time, make gentle chocolated X-Lax your first choice for occasional use only as directed.
6: We've always been healthy, and X-Lax is part of that.
4: Terror. Suspense. Search for Joseph Tully, a novel of revenge by the sword. Revenge today for a murder that happened 2,000 years ago. Hunter and victim move toward the climax, driven by forces that neither can understand nor control. The Search for Joseph Tully, the nerve-by-nerve demolition of a man. And the head is the last to go. The Search for Joseph Tully, an Avon paperback. Announcing Buick's open-door policy. An open invitation to come in and inspect, examine, and really discover why the 1977 Buicks are selling better than any other Buicks in history. Take a look at the Electra, the ultimate Buick, with meaningful room for six and an interior that's pure Buick. Power steering, power brakes, power windows, all standard. And discover also that this is a great time to buy a new Buick. Your Buick dealer is open to reasonable offers. Buick's open-door policy at your Buick dealer. Take a trip into Kathy Wood's upstairs closet. There on a cluttered shelf is her forgotten brown bottle of Lysol brand disinfectant. Pity, because every day in this hot, humid weather, she could be using Lysol to prevent mold and mildew. She could be killing athlete's foot fungus and household germs on shower floors. Where's your brown bottle of Lysol?
6: Let's see. I I used it every day when the
4: dog was a puppy. Look for Lysol in the red and yellow box at home or at your store.
7: If you suffer occasional attacks of bronchial asthma, listen closely while I take my next breath. That's how fast Broncade Mist gets to your lungs, as fast as your next breath. As fast as your next breath, Broncade Mist gets to where you need it. In seconds, you're breathing easier. Nothing you can buy works faster than Broncade Mist. It gets to your lungs as fast as your next breath. Broncade Mist, use only as directed.
4: I spoke about coincidence. Is there such a thing? Or are certain meetings that seem to be accidents predetermined? Philosophers argue the subject to a draw, but I imagine that Captain O'Reilly, freed by the way, and Sprague was never caught, often wonders about the awful night he was lost in the fog. Our cast included Gordon Gould, Martha Greenhouse, Ian Martin, and William Griffiths. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. Radio Mystery Theater was sponsored in part by True Value Hardware Stores. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant
7: dreams. The W R Mystery Theater was also sponsored in part by Shoprite Supermarkets, where you get a lot more for little less. The preceding program, furnished by CBS Radio, the eight and nine o'clock news, and What's Your Problem with Bernard Meltzer, will not be heard tonight. Stay tuned now for W R Sports coverage of Round Two of the Cosmos Fort Lauderdale Strikers playoff soccer game, live from Fort Lauderdale. Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not.
2: Danny London was hit with a lucky punch Born deaf and dumb, he was hit during a boxing match And the punch gave him his hearing and his speech Believe it or not In a moment, I'll tell you about the church that's always up to date Salisbury Cathedral bears the curious, creative talents of her builders In the form of features related to the calendar It has as many doors as there are months in the year As many windows as there are days As many pillars as there are hours. As many sculptures as there are minutes in an hour. As many consecration crosses as there are seconds in a minute. However, the architects neglected one detail. The tower leans 22 and a half inches off center. Believe it or not.
1: This week's edition of Dreadtime Stories. Just a reminder that our program is still undergoing some changes, and next week might be slightly different. I would also like to remind everyone that the Oddcast edition of this program will also be undergoing some changes. Finally, all incidental music heard on this program comes to us courtesy of Tabletop Audio at tabletopaudio.com. Tabletop Audio music wherever you work, podcast or play. Dungeons & Dragons. Until next time, this is yours cruelly, Adam Hebert, wishing you and yours unpleasant dreams.